الحمد لله وحده والصلاة والسلام على من لا نبي بعده نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين وأن معهم إلى يوم الدين أشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله الحمد لله Welcome back This is our final or penultimate day um, the first lecture of the session. Before we begin, I have to again go through the pains of reminding ourselves of some of the essential announcements. Um, some of them are not quite happy ones, unfortunately. Uh, the first thing is, of course, about mobile phones. Please do switch them off or put them on silent mode. They do distract the speakers, no matter how professional they are. Uh, but uh, the unhappy announcements I have to make is about the litter. I, I know it sounds petty, and perhaps I shouldn't start the day off by talking about these things. But they need to be mentioned, because I think if all of us are, are, are vigilant enough, we could prevent some of the uh, mishaps around the site. It's our responsibility, and there's an awful lot of litter being um, put across the, everywhere. Especially when we're walking across, like to, towards Digby Hall, you'll find that some children have even put litter into our neighbor's gardens and through the letter boxes, and that's completely disgraceful. It gives us not only a bad impression, but actually puts the whole comp uh, conference at jeopardy because uh, the university will get complained, and they might not allow us to hold another event next year. They, they, they do respect what the neighbors think of, of uh, the university itself. Uh, the second thing, of course, are courtesy towards elders. That's the only thing I want to emphasize. Um, general courtesy should, should prevail and inshallah we are all endowed with good manners and we know the importance of it. But um, there have been several incidents, both at Gilbert Murray and at Villiers and in this hall itself, where perhaps we have not shown, and that includes you and I, all of us, we have not shown uh, the type of respect we need to show to perhaps our elder brothers and sisters in terms of reservation of seats and so forth. Um, in principle, you cannot reserve a seat you can't put a wallet or a book and go away half an hour later, come back and say, that's my seat, and get off. You know, it's my, for my friend and things like that. Once you leave, you leave, and you come back, you find a fresh seat. And that's how it has to work, unfortunately. We can't reserve because accommodation is very much limited, unfortunately, and we are overbooked. And uh, for your information, I think next year we're going to make the whole event a ticketing-only event. So no ticket, you don't come, not, not even as a day-tripper. Because we, we, we have a problem trying to cope with the numbers, unfortunately. But anyway, let me quickly introduce you uh, our, our celebrated speaker, Dr. Yasin Dutton. Uh, prior to everything, he was actually an imam in the Norwich Mosque for about eight years. But he's uh, qualified uh, in the, sorry, find the, a PhD, with a PhD in early Islamic uh, uh, law, law at the University of Oxford. And he taught there for a little while, and then subsequently he moved to the University of Edinburgh, and he's a senior lecturer there teaching uh, Arabic and Islamic studies. Uh, his particular emphasis in study has been in other areas like fiqh in the Islamic world and Islam and the environment, and also in early Quranic manuscripts and so forth. And today's lecture is about uh, participating in civil society, and I hope for the next hour or so we can uh, listen to him with rapt attention and try and benefit from the few words of advice that he might have for all of us, insha'Allah ta'ala. Jazakumullah khairan. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Wa sallallahu ala seedina Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa ashabihi ajma'in. First of all, I'd like to thank Sidi Abu Muntasir 
and all the organizers of this conference for inviting me and for giving me the opportunity to talk to you all this morning. And I would just like to say that the very fact that you have come here is a witness for you on the day of rising. We know from the hadith of the Prophet that whoever, if you see somebody coming to the mosque, if you see somebody coming to the mosque habitually, then bear witness that he is a believer. Now I say that because that means something. If you are among the mu'mineen, then inshallah you can expect good. So this affair that we are on, this business, this matter, is a serious business. It's an important business, and I hope we will get benefit from some of the things that I want to share with you. But it is also a business of joy. It is, it is, it's the question of bashir al-mu'mineen. It's a question of bushra, good news. The Prophet came to give good news and a warning. And even the warning was a beneficial warning, because they say that the idea of nadir is the person who says, don't go there, it's dangerous. Keep away from that, it's dangerous. So it's a beneficial warning. So the Prophet came as a Bashir, as a bringer of good news, and a nadir, as a warner. And that is what we have to offer the people around us. Good news and a warning. And that is our business. Now it's within that context that I want to say something about this title that I've been asked to speak about, Participating in Civil Society. Now, as Abu Muntasir will know, when I was first asked this, I had a few question marks, I had a few qualms. I thought, how far can you participate in care for a society? And then you realize that it's actually wrong to start thinking of it as care for a society, because people are people, and then you have a government which is something else, and there's all these various different levels of interaction. And what we've heard over the past, I was going to say a few days, in fact it's only one day, but it seems there have been so many things going on, it seems longer than that. But what we heard, for example, yesterday, I was very impressed by the talk about the, uh, the well, there was the good news and bad news, I suppose, as well, but the, the situation in Tower Hamlets, and the need for the parents to get involved. Because subhanAllah, if people have chosen to be here, then they should make the best of where they are. What else can you do? And that English woman who cut the hedge, that's imatatul adha. That's wiping away the harm from the path, which is what the Prophet has told us to be, to be doing. So there we have, we're learning the lesson from the people around us that we should be teaching them. It seems to me that we have to engage with what is around us, with our environment. That's exactly what it means. And I have isolated a number of levels here. And all of them, I think, are important. The first one is, in a sense, the simple, the natural, non-personal environment. The place we live in terms of the trees, in terms of the plants, in terms of the climate. Bear in mind that until maybe 100 years ago, the vast majority of people in England lived in villages, not in the towns, not in the cities. I think it was something like 85%, possibly even more before that. This was maybe 100 years ago, and only 15% in the cities. Now it's almost completely the other way around. Most people are in cities, and they're not in, in the countryside. Now that means that people are divorced from their environment. As Muslims, we are people who look for the moon in Ramadan. We see whether it's sunset or not to know whether it's time for Maghrib. That's the original pattern. 
Nowadays, of course, we say 9.15. No, no, it's got to be, you know, we break the fast at 9.16. And everyone's looking at the clock. And we've, we live in a different sort of world. And it seems to me that one of the things that we can do is to just, not perhaps everybody, but some people who are interested, why not get familiar with the environment? You heard one of the things about, I'm interested in Islam and the environment. If you look at the picture globally, you find a complete horror story of the number of species that are being made extinct every year. But we don't even know what the species are around us. I was sitting in my bed, I was lying in my bed this morning after Fajr, and I heard a robin singing. Now, I happen to know what a robin song sounds like, but I would wonder how many people know what a robin, do you know what a robin is, first of all, and then do you know what the robin song is like, or the blackbird song? Now, these things, they don't matter as details. I'm not saying everybody, you know, tomorrow morning, if you don't know what a blackbird sounds like, you know, so many marks off. It's not like that. I'm not saying that. But... We hear the verse, we heard it yesterday in Fajr. Al-Ladhini, I don't know if it's Al-Ladhini yatafakkarun or then wa yatafakkarun. Yatafakkarun fi khalqis samawati wal ard. They think, they reflect upon the creation of the heavens and the earth. I once wanted to spend some time in one of the glens in Scotland. And I contacted somebody and I said, oh, I'd just like to have a, a couple of days of the dunya. And he reminded me, he said, he said, I'll bet you so much you won't find any dunya there. He said, you will find Allah's ard and his samawat. You won't find the dunya. Dunya being women, wine, song, it said, all those things that distract you. But he said, there you will just see Allah's creation. So that's one level. I don't want to spend too much time on that. I'll move on. More obviously, we have our families and we have our friends. That's the first stage of interaction. And, of course, in the case of Muslims, we have our brothers in the mosque and our sisters in the community. Now, of course, for some of you, that's, in a sense, the same thing. But others of us who've become Muslim will have people who are non-Muslim in the family. That, again, is another thing where there has to be a balance, but it's important because you are the first port of call for their knowledge of Islam. And if our business is to pass on this message, the good news and the warning then surely that's an obvious start point. That's an easy start point. <coughs> All of us live next to other people. So there's neighbors. Most of us have jobs or do some sort of work at the very least. So you have colleagues. Now, all of these people, notice how you are. People are not stupid. And you can tell a lot from the way people are, from the way, they, the way their faces are. Why is it that the Prophet told us that a smile is sadaqah? That smile makes the other person feel good when they're with you. And the more that happens, the more people feel comfortable in your presence. And then they say, what is it about this person? He's always smiling. You know, even when these difficult things happen, he just says, oh, well, it's by Allah. You know. and, they, and when it happens to me, he says, I'm in a stress for you know, 10 days in a row just for a small thing. And then the next thing comes and bam, bam, bam. So our very being, the way we live, and of course the way we die, is or can be a lesson for those around us. We can take it a bit further, but this is perhaps for specialists rather than most people. And the bit further I'm thinking about is the media. Now, most of you won't be writers, you won't be broadcasters, you won't be journalists, you won't be whatever it is. 
But if you are, then that is an obvious way of getting through to a lot more people. When I first started at the University of Edinburgh, uh, they, as in all universities, they have a very strong um, emphasis on what they call research. And they don't, mean, they don't really mean research, they mean publishing. They mean you've got to get published. An article, a book, whatever it is, just publish, 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 publish. And I said, well, surely teaching is important, is the thing, because that is person to person. Then you can actually interact with somebody. And I got the answer, well, yes, it is. But if you think, how many people, even in this room, I don't know, a couple of hundred? How many people can a book get out to? A couple of thousand, maybe many, many thousand. So there's a benefit. Television, how many people would switch on the television and watch the program on Islam in Saudi Arabia or something. There's a lot more people. So media is an important outlet for those who know about it and who are comfortable with it. I myself am not too happy with, <coughs> with television and, and this sort of thing, but there are people who are very good at it, and that is a very good way of getting the message across. I think the basic point... And this is a hadith that I learned very, very early on, which was that the Prophet said, Inna deen al The deen is dealings, interpersonal dealings. That's the key outward appearance of the deen. Of course, there's aqidah, there's what you have to believe, there's your sort of inner landscape, but then it's how you act. And the famous hadith in the 40 hadith, Ittaqi laha haythuma kunt. So the Prophet said, Fear Allah wherever you are. Be aware of Allah wherever you are. There's no place you can be where Allah doesn't see what you do and doesn't hear what you say, etc. Follow up because people are going to slip. They're going to make mistakes. Follow up a wrong action with a right action. We don't have this guilt trip, oh, dear, dear, the sins of the world. That's Christianity. We've, we're not interested in that, in Christianity. We're interested in the pure deen. Follow up a wrong action with a right action. It gets rid of it. It wipes it out. That, again, is good news for all of us. Because all of us are khatta'un. All of us make mistakes. And the best of those who make mistakes are the ones who turn away from their wrong action afterwards and turn back to Allah Ta'ala. And Allah loves those who turn back to him. So follow up a wrong action with a right action. It will wipe it out and behave well towards people. All people in general. We want to act in the world. It's an obvious point, but it seems to me that one has to have knowledge before action. We have to know our environment in order to act in it. We should get to know the people around us. And again, I mentioned the level of, say, knowing the plants and the trees and things, just, just so that you know where you are. And again, it, re it reminds me of the fact that um, people in the old days, they would know different types of wood. This wood would be good for this purpose. That wood would be good for a different purpose. Now, we don't even know, and we rely on gas and electricity. What happens when all that goes? And we don't even know which wood is good to use for this and which wood is good to use for that. Again, it's not everybody doesn't need to know this, but surely it's something to at least bear in mind. And we should also be aware of the 
history of the place we are. It seems to me this is an important point. And the culture. Sidna Omar radiallahu anhu advised people to teach their children the poem called Lamiyat al-Arab. I don't know if those of you who know that. I had to study it when I studied Arabic at university. Aqimu bani ummi sudura matiyikum fa'inni ila qawmin siwakum la'amiru, etc. I don't know any more than that, so you don't have to be impressed. That's all I know. But he said, he said, teach your children Lamiyat al-Arab, that poem, because it has in it behavior, has in it good behavior, akhlaq, akhlaq al-Arab. Now that was a jahili poem. He didn't say, okay, we're Muslims now, forget the whole lot. He said, no, 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 this has got things, this has got things like hazm in it, this is you know, determination. This has got sabr, this has got winni lamola sabri, It's got in it these good qualities. And remember that the Prophet said that people are like mines, and they're so ma'adin. The best of them in the jahiliyyah are the best of them in Islam. The ones who are the best in the jahiliyyah, they will be the best in Islam when they understand. So we have to be hunters, as it were. Sayyadin, we have to look around us and where are the, the good qualities. That woman who cut the tree, who cut the bush to clear, to clear up the path in Tower Hamlets, is the sort of person that understands what Islam is about, effectively. Because it's not strange. It should be a natural pattern. It's fitratullah. It's a normal thing. And then people get caught by becoming a Jew, becoming a Christian, becoming a Majin, etc., fire worship, all these other patterns that get imposed. But the basic thing, Allah Ta'ala says it, subhanAllah, وَنَفْسٍ وَمَا سَوَّاهَا فَأَلْهَمَهَا فُجُورَهَا وَتَقْوَاهَا So there's the nafs, there's the self. Allah Ta'ala says, by the self and what fashioned it, and inspired in it knowledge of what is wrong and what is right. It's wrong action and it's right action, literally. So these are shared things. People know that certain qualities are good and certain qualities are bad. Everybody respects honesty. Everybody respects courage. We say in English, he's a man of his word. It's exactly the same the world over. You can trust the person. So we have to build up trust. How do you build up trust? You build up trust by being with people, by interacting with them, meeting these parents at the school, etc. These are important things. They're small actions, or you may consider them small. They may be very big. If they lead to somebody getting to know about Islam, becoming a Muslim, then they're very big indeed. Like the red camels, the reward of somebody of taking somebody into Islam is like being given the best livestock that, that you could imagine in the terms of the people who, who uh, measure wealth by livestock. So what I'm in a sense saying is that we can, we can learn from what is around us and we have to find out about what is around us in terms of the environment in general and the people, etc. But also, we should be teachers. And as I said, even if just by a smile and just by helping others. And on this, point, on this level, I would like to say also that we must teach people not so much about Islam. I think we have to avoid using this word Islam, 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 Islam. Because we end up doing hidden shirk. We, we, are not, we don't worship Islam. We worship Allah. 
And I noticed when I was first getting introduced to Islam that the speech that impressed me was when people said, Allah says, Allah does. The Prophet said, the Prophet was. Because that is real. Allah is al-haq. He is the real. So talk about Allah. Talk about the Prophet Leave Islam to itself. Islam is what you do to Allah. You submit to Allah. That, if you like, comes later. Islam is convenient as a sort of buzzword to put all those things together. But the key thing is Allah Ta'ala. People do not realize what it means to worship Allah Ta'ala. They do not know who the Prophet is, who the Prophet was. They don't know his qualities. They don't realize how generous he was. They don't realize how courageous he was. They don't realize how perfect his behavior was. They don't realize how much we love him, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. How much we want to follow him. They don't realize how useful he is as a guide. They don't know these things. Who's going to tell them? Every single one of you has only got here because somebody somewhere down the line told you something. That's whether you're a new Muslim or whether you were born into Islam, whatever it is. Your parents may have told you, your uncle or somebody. And if you're a new Muslim, it's always somebody who said to you at first, well, have you thought about this? Do you know about this? Have you heard about that? And we have plenty of opportunities. I'd like to move it on a little stage further because it seems to me that an <coughs> another key issue for us as Muslims to understand at the very least is where we fit in, not so much on the local level, but on a more, on a broader level, on a level of political vision. Because it seems to me that our aspirations and indeed our, what we teach, what we teach about, shouldn't just be restricted to the local level, shouldn't just stop at the local level. Words, we have something to teach people about the nature of the world in general. And it also is important that our deen does not remain a private matter. This is a major difference and everybody will recognize it, that the deen of Islam is not private religion. Now, in this society, they want to make religion a private matter. You can have your deen, you can be what you like, but don't let it impinge on me. You can be a Jew, you can be a Hindu, you can be a Christian, you can be a Buddhist, you can be a Jain, you can be a, you know, a New Age, uh, whatever it is, you can be a pagan, you can be a uh, whatever, like. you can be a Muslim as well. You know, it's like one of many. Now, that isn't our position. Our position in the deen and Allah al-Islam. But Islam, not in that reified sense, not as a thing that you worship, but as how we are towards our creator every day, all the time. But our deen has been cut back. Somebody once said to me, there's plenty of believers. Don't criticize people for not having belief. He said, but they've been cheated of their Islam. Because Islam is what you had, for example, when you had the caliphate. Then there was a chance. Then there was a political reality. We've been cheated of that. So people have the desire. People want to worship. They want to be Muslims. All of you have voted with your feet to come to this conference because you, you're interested in the business. You want to be a Muslim. You want Allah Ta'ala's mercy. You want something. But how do you achieve that? How do we get back to the caliphate, for example? So we have to have a political vision because our ulama have given their blood, basically, to preserve something. And we've got that <coughs> in the books. <coughs> and then we want to bring that into some sort of 
reality. And just to emphasize this, how important it is, I just want to look at the five pillars very briefly. In fact, not even all of the five pillars. And just see what this implies. Because this is, uh, this is non-controversial. This is absolutely any madhab, any group, any, anyone who calls themselves a Muslim will, will recognize the importance of the five pillars. Shahada. The key thing about shahada is that you can't say it by yourself. You have to have two witnesses. So already, three people are necessary. You can't be a Muslim by yourself. Maybe there's talk in the books of fiqh about what happens if somebody says shahada by himself on a desert. Maybe, but I mean, for all intents and purposes, that's the exception. The general rule is you say the shahada with two witnesses in order to become a Muslim. So it's already involving other people. The prayer. We all know that the prayer in a jama'ah is worth 25 or 27 times more than it is if you do it by yourself. So already that involves people. And when you have a group of 25 or 27, then somebody, of course, has to be the imam. So already the implications, if you like, of leadership come in just with doing the prayer. When you get to the Jummah, it becomes even more obvious. Because certainly according to Hanafi fiqh and uh, possibly the others as well, um, and I'm not actually Hanfi, but uh, this is an, an important point, that the khutbah should be in the name of the caliph, is what they say. So that some people even say that there is, in a sense, no Jummah where you don't have a political leadership. Now, even if that's only one view, the point, even that it exists, points to something. It points that normally the best way of doing things is where it's done in the name of a political authority. We don't have that political authority, not in the name of Islam. <coughs> The third pillar, zakat, absolutely essential. وَأَقِيمُ الصَّلَاةَ صَلَاةَ فِي قِرَاءَةَ وَأَقِيمُ الصَّلَاةَ وَأَتُوا الزَّكَاةَ Establish the prayer and pay the zakat. Many, many times repeated in the Quran. Now what does Allah Ta'ala say about zakat? And again, I'm not hafiz, so excuse me if I make a mistake in the order. إِنَّمَا الصَّدَقَاتُ لِلْفُقَرَاءِ وَالْمَسَّاكِينَ Third category, Zakat is for the destitute and the poor and those appointed to collect it, Allah says. Who appoints them? If you go to any early Arabic source and come across the word amil, it means a representative, or perhaps you could say an agent, of the governor who is entrusted with a task. You have the say and the su'ah, the people who go around collecting zakat. They're appointed by the government. If you don't have a government or a political authority, how can you appoint the collectors for zakat? So technically speaking, you cannot actually administer zakat correctly without having a political authority. But that's not the only thing Allah Ta'ala says about zakat. Khudh min amwalihim sadaqatan. Khud is a command in the singular. Khud, take. Khud min amwalihim, take from their wealth sadaqa, a, well, zakat. To tahiruhum, to purify them. Who's the take addressed to? Now, this was actually the issue that came up right at the very beginning of the of the business after the Prophet had died. And the people who 
opposed Sidna Abu Bakr, opposed him on the issue of zakat, or there were a large group of them who did, and refused to pay zakat. They said, we used to pay it to the Prophet and we used to get from it tezki and tathir, etc., as in the, as in the ayah, purification. And he says, but we no longer get that from you. And then Sidna Abu Bakr said, whoever separates between the prayer and zakah, من فرق بين الصلاح والزكاة جهدتها عليه I will fight him for it I will do jihad against him because of that and so Sidna Abu Bakr emphasized the importance of zakah alongside, alongside uh, salah and he emphasized it as a political reality as well and later if you go into the tafsirs you find that they explain that that khudh is in effect the representative of Allah Ta'ala. Because it, later on it says, If that's the area, So Allah Ta'ala accepts Tawbah from his slaves and he's the one who takes the sadaqah. He's the one who takes the zakat in reality. So that even the Prophet that it's not an excuse. After the Prophet died, then somebody else takes his place, and after that person dies, someone else takes his place, and it's still khud, khud, khud in the singular to the leader of the Muslims to take zakah. Now, with all due respect, there's a, a sign there which says zakah, but it's not the political authority because we don't have one. So this is a second best. Now, do we want to live in a world of second best all the time? Or do we want to move, do we want to have a vision of something which is better? So that, all I'm saying is that we have to keep that view. We do need political authority sooner or later in order to have a complete Islam. Up until that point, it isn't. And if it's private religion, that's United Nations. We're not, I'm not interested anyway. Psalm, fasting, again, just move through very quickly, but every year we have this problem. Has the moon been seen? Has it not been seen? This country fasts a day early, next, you know, the people... So, so. Technically speaking, you know, when Sharisi mentions this in his uh, Fatawi, uh, as regards the uh, Maghrib, he points out, as he's talking about actually why, why people have to get out of a careful country, which is a, a different situation. That was when the Christians had overtaken the uh, Andalus. And he said, look, what, what happens to the five pillars when you have no political authority? He says, Salat gets... Uh, abused, and that's your uh, People, people uh, take it as a, uh, they mock it. <laughs> look at these people. Look what they're doing, a, and you can't do anything about it. Zakah, he says, it becomes impossible because there's no authority to collect it. But then he says about the about Ramadan. He says it needs a political authority to give validity to the sighting. So the sighting, two people see it. Their testimony goes up to the Qadi. The Qadi is under the control of the Emir in theory. And then the Emir announces to the community that tomorrow will be the first day of Ramadan, etc. That's how it should happen correctly. <coughs> and if, that's another story. I'm not going to go into the whole question of uh, the, the fiqh of Ramadan at this point, but there is a big question mark over it. It seems to me that this is the understanding, if you like, this political vision is the understanding of not taking the kafirin as awliya. Now, there's any number of ways of looking at this and false ways, etc. But Allah Ta'ala tells us something. Allah Ta'ala tells us, do not take the kafirin as awliya. So whatever it is, 
we must not do it. We know at the same time that there is no problem. The Prophet had contact with Jews who were neighbors and so on and so forth and with other people, invited the people of Najran into Medina. So there's no problem in being friendly towards the kuffar. That's not a problem. That's the only way they're going to be friendly towards us in, the sense of, in terms of coming to the deen. I mean, what else is there? If you live with people, are you going to hate them all the time? What's the point of living with people you hate? And there are good people around. This is the point. There are good potential, potential Muslims. But what it means is that we cannot accept a permanent situation of being under someone else's authority. Because the awliya is like the protector, like the political protector. And we've seen what happens with supposed liberal democracy in Guantanamo Bay. That's what it ends up being in the name of all these myths that people talk about. It just ends up being a concentration camp. And that's where we will end up unless we're careful. Now, you might say, well, yes, but how do we get to this? Sheikh Khalid Yassin yesterday mentioned the importance of leadership. And I would add to that the importance of having the intention of wanting leadership and being able to trust leaders as well is very important. But what I had in mind in particular on this question was this Again, it's a hadith, and forgive me if I get the wording wrong, it's just from memory. Whoever dies and hasn't done jihad, hasn't gone on a ghazwa, hasn't gone on an expedition, however you think of that, or has not wanted to do so, literally his self has told him to do so. In other words, he said, you know, you think to yourself, well, if I could do that, I'd really like uh, that. That's what I want to do. I, uh, in other words, you can want it. That's the sort of second level. So you either do it, or if you can't do it, at least you want to do it. And if you don't, then you're dying on a branch of nifaq, of hypocrisy. So there's the wanting something. So what I'm talking about, in a sense, is that getting that desire in us as a community. Because then Allah Ta'ala can give us what we want. Allah Ta'ala will give us what's in our hearts. If we don't want it, why should Allah Ta'ala give it to us? And if we do want it, why should he keep it away from us? Well, he's the Kareem. He's Latif, Al-Khabir. He knows. He can do it. It's not difficult. Things can change. This society, it seems to us so powerful. But look at the mess they're making. Look at the environmental degradation. Look at nuclear energy and the problems that is causing. They're now saying there's going to be so much carbon dioxide in the atmosphere that we're going to have to think of some way of getting rid of it. And they're now talking about making sort of uh, cavities in the earth that they can put the carbon dioxide into. I mean, subhanAllah, what a mess. Every day, I, I'm, I'm sitting at home and I, I, I finish the, the carton of milk and it's a piece of plastic, you know, and I have to squash it with my foot or something to you know, not take up so much space. And I throw it away and I think, where's that going to go? How quickly is that going to break down? And we're just creating this mess. And America is, uh, oh, I mean, you know, what can one say? It's overstretching itself in the sort of imperial designs of taking over the whole world. But what are they taking over the whole world for? You know, to pollute the whole world? I mean, I... You know, it's, it's, it's a society in terminal decline. 
So then you have to think, well, what is going to be in place afterwards? I heard that many, many years ago. I don't know if it's a hadith. I don't know if it's just a qawl. Learn to live on the rough side. Don't get too used to comfort. Naim. Learn to live on the rough side because civilization will not last. So what are we going to put into its place when all this thing crumbles? That, in a sense, is why I think it's still important that we have people who are interested in the land, who can farm. We, have, we need people who can produce the you know, good quality halal chickens, etc., instead of all this battery farming rubbish and all this sort of stuff. Quality. We need, we need to think about these things. Yes. The hukum of staying in Dar al-Kufr, according to the traditional ulama, is one of two options, da'wa or jihad. This is the standard picture. Jihad needs certain conditions, certain preconditions. Jihad is not random vigilante killing and all this sort of stuff. It needs an emir. So again, we're back to politics. If we don't have an emir, then in a sense, the time isn't right for jihad. You can't even think about it. But we can do da'wah. And that is an open door and an open book. And that will bring us big benefits in this world and the next. So I would say we need to concentrate on that. <coughs> I've said it already, but I'll just repeat it briefly. This question of the, uh, preserving the deen, applying what we know to the extent that we are able. And in the meantime, we should look to impart our skills, whatever they are. Because it seems to me that all of us have qualities. All of us have skills. All of us have something that we can offer. So that is what we should be doing. If you're a good car mechanic, just go and be a good car mechanic. People will respect you for it. You don't have to be a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer or all these things. You just be good at what you're doing. Be a good teacher. Be a good neighbor. Be a, just do your work well. Inna allaha yuhibbu Allah loves if any of you does something that he perfects his action. So that, in a sense, is the simple advice. Now, I don't want to let this opportunity pass without making a comment on what I think is the prime issue of the time. And it comes under the question of social justice. Because part of our task as well, as I said, is not just to think small but to think larger and not just to think locally but to think in terms of the whole island if you like where we are and beyond that etc and achieving social justice in this day and age seems to me to demand first of all an understanding of the way things are and then what we can do to change things I was told many years ago and I've never forgotten it if they talk to you politics talk back to them economics. And if they talk to you economics, talk back to them politics. What does that mean? If they talk to you politics, they talk about, you know, labor, conservative, you know, who we're going to vote for, who's going to be good for the Muslims, etc., etc. If they talk to you politics, in other words, if they pitch the conversation at that level, if they pitch their thinking at that level, then pitch it back to them on the level of economics. See what the economic benefit is of those things. In other words, see how power is really exercised in the modern world. Likewise, if they talk to you economics, 
then recognize that that is where power is exercised today. Because I can tell you the British government has been in debt since the year 1695 when the Bank of England was set up. Eight and a half percent. The bank lent the government money at eight and a half percent. And the nation has been in debt ever since. When Tony Blair became Prime Minister, which was the year after I moved to Edinburgh, I think that was, I can't remember, May 1997, I think. May the 1st was the day of the election. On May the 8th, he made an announcement. I suppose you won't remember. I wouldn't, unless I'd noticed it at the time. And that was to hand over interest rates to the Bank of England. Now, that might not mean very much, but if you realize the Bank of England is a private institution and always has been, and if you realize the power and leverage that the international financial community has that owes no allegiance to any state, incidentally, IMF, World Bank, they have their own laws which aren't subject to any national laws. He handed over overtly the control of interest rates to the Bank of England, which is a private institution. So where is the government? Whose hands is the government in? Who's got the government's hand behind their back telling them what to do? Now, there's a whole story behind that. Let us try to prioritize. Let me ask you a simple question. What is the most serious wrong action in Islam? Shirk. Absolutely. Now try and think of number two. Think of what can you be killed for, for example. That's pretty serious. Well, there's two obvious things. It seems to me you can be killed for murdering somebody, but you don't have to be killed. It could be blood money, and it could be just forgiveness. But what about zina ba'd al-ihsan? Yes? Fornication, after having been correctly married, you can be stoned to death. Now, that's serious, and we're in a society where zina is rampant. But what about something that is 35 times worse than zina, or in one way, 70 times worse than zina? Interest, riba. Okay? Now, there's something that we take for granted, that we use every single day, and I've got some examples in my pocket. piece of paper that you'll all recognize. Now, this tells a story. What does it say? Have you read it? First of all, it says Bank of England, which is, I suppose, true. But as I said, it's not a national bank. Underneath, in the small print, I promise to pay the bearer on demand the sum of 10 pounds. Do you know, even this has been changed. Because in Scotland, where, as you heard, I live and work, they actually have the old wording. Now, I have one Scottish note with me. And you'll see, oh, two. Ah, oh, mashallah. These are the red ones. There's other colors. I promise to pay exactly the same thing. The, what is it, the, the, the governor and company of the Bank of Scotland promised to pay here in Edinburgh to the bearer on demand 20 pounds sterling. They've actually taken that off the English notes. It used to be on them. Do you know what sterling is? What does sterling mean? Go back to the Middle Ages. Go back to Edward I or one of these people. 
the ancient and just standard of England was the pound sterling of silver. And that meant 917 parts in the thousand. This is a silver coin of sterling silver. That's what sterling means. Now, this happens to be a dirham according to the size of the sharia. So that if you want to pay zakat and pay it as it were normally, then 200 of these is the nisab. This is about three grams of sterling silver. This is what sterling silver is. Well, how then did this come about? What's this? Paper, I mean, the kufar use it for you know what. And, and, and this can, this can uh, you put it in the ground and it rots. You, know, you pour water on it, it f falls apart. This doesn't, at least not so quickly. And there's something else I'll show you in a minute, which certainly doesn't. So how did we get to this situation? How is it that we've all been, as it were, tricked into using paper? You go to Ryman's or something and buy paper. It doesn't cost you anything like 20 pounds. So what's going on? Now, I haven't got much time, but I must just use this opportunity, as I said. Let us imagine that we've got 10 people with 10 amounts of real metal. Let's assume that it's gold. I'll try and put it here. Here it'll do. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. There we are. How does this paper come about? Because this is absolutely critical. This is, if you like, what we take for granted every day, and this is our enslavement as well by the people who issue this stuff. Now, let's just look what happens or what happened. So these ten people go to the, the banker and they leave their money. And the banker gives them a piece of paper saying, I promise to pay you whenever you want one dirham. Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And these people go away with their piece of paper and they know that any time they want, they can go back to the goldsmith and they can get their money back, their gold. Let's assume it's gold, even nicer. Now, what happened was that, on average, these goldsmiths realized that of those ten people, only one, on average, asked for his money back. And the rest were happy just to leave it there as savings, on average. One day, somebody might take two, but then nobody else would take anything for a couple of days, Further down the line, somebody might uh, you know, take three, but that would be less common and so on and so on. Basically, it would work that, on average, nine were left. Now, usury used to be forbidden in Christianity as well and in Judaism to the non-Jews, to the, to the, uh, to the, uh, the, between, them, between themselves. But with the so-called reform of Christianity in the time of Calvin, etc., he said, I see no problem with 5%. He said, it's basically the same as trade. They said that riba and trade, same thing. That's what Calvin said. From that time onwards, which was in the 1500s, the floodgates were opened. And people started, because there's nothing to stop you. You have this 90% of this money here, 
why can't we do exactly the same thing? We've given people these pieces of paper. On average, only one in ten comes. So we can do the same thing. We've got nine there. Let's issue one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine pieces of paper. But then on average, only one in ten of those comes back for their money. So we're now creating... So that's another lot there. So this can be reissued. And the process goes on until, as you can see, quite simply mathematically, 10 pieces of coins creates 100 pieces of paper of which 10 relate to somebody's actual wealth and 90 have been created out of nothing. Why? This isn't created for nothing because he says, the banker says, yeah, I can lend you one dirham, but you have to give me back 1.1 at the end of the year. Interest, 10%. So this other stuff is issued at interest. And that is the nature of our banking system. Fractional reserve banking is that, which is the system, is what fraction can you keep which will satisfy your customers and allow you to lend out the rest at interest. And it used to be something like 10%. Now it's down to, I think by law it has to be, the banks have to keep something like 1.5% cash. 1.5%. The rest is created out of nothing. As one scholar put it in the 1930s, he said, it is imagined to exist for the purpose of charging interest on it. Fictitious loans. Now, we're Muslims. We say riba is haram. Now, can anybody seriously tell me that this system is anything other than usurious. I'm talking about the basic system, the money, this stuff that we have here is issued at, is a loan, it's a loan issued, how can I say, in the, I'm trying to think of the, the technical language of it, I'm not quite sure, uh, an interest-bearing loan in favour of the banking systems of the world. It's an interest-bearing loan in favour of the banking systems of the world. Think of yourself in a cesspool. How can you do wudu? That's the situation we're in. The dust of riba has covered everybody. Ghubara riba fil hadith has covered everybody. And that is our enslavement. That's what guides government policies. That's what makes your poll tax go up. That's what actually causes inflation. Because all of this paper we've now created out of this 10 pieces of gold, as it were, we've created 100 pieces of paper but 90 of those demand a 10% coming back, so that's going to be another whatever it is, 4.5. Where's that coming from? We've now got 104.5. And then that gets relent, and then there's a, next year it's 110 or whatever it is, and then so on and so forth. And if you go into the economics of the situation, I'm not an economist, but any of you who are, please check it out and you'll see for yourselves. The money supply is constantly increasing because of interest in the system. And that is why we have inflation. Now, let me finish on a positive note and a beautifully positive note because it's from the Prophet from Sahih al-Bukhari this is from the Kitab Fada'il al-Sahaba in Sahih al-Bukhari now this is good news for the believers and bad news for the kuffar and Urwata and the Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam a'atahu dinaran يَشْتَرِ لَهُ بِهِ شَاهِ فَاشْتَرَ لَهُ بِهِ شَاتَيْنِ فَبَاعَ إِحْدَاهُمَا بِدِينَارٍ 
وجاءه صلى الله عليه وسلم بدينار وشاه فدعا له بالبركة في بيعه وكان لو اشترى التراب لربح فيه that the Prophet ﷺ gave him a dinar. I have a dinar here. This is a dinar. This is the shara'i dinar. Just like we got the shara'i dirham here. 20 of these is in the saab. This is 4.25 grams of 22 karat gold. And this is the same weight. This was the weight that was standardized at the time of Sayyidina Umar so that seven of these would be the same as seven of those in weight. Because they're weights of gold and silver, not value by itself. It's a, a commodity. This has a value on the market now. And I'll tell you what that is in a minute. So Orwa was given <laughs> by the Prophet a dinar in order to buy a sheep. Orwa knew where to go to get a good deal. And he used this amount of gold to buy two sheep. And he wanted to please the Prophet So he sold he knew, he knew, you know, where to go for, where to sell a sheep and where to buy a sheep. He sold, he got two sheep, he sold one of them, he sold it on again, resold it for a dinar, because that's, if you like, the standard price that they were expecting. So he had not only the sheep that the Prophet had asked for, but also was able to give him his dinar back. And so he went back to the Prophet and you can imagine, you're smiling, the Prophet would have been very pleased. And so the Prophet made dua for him, that he would have barakah in his, sell, in, his, in his buying and selling. And he said after that time, he said even if he was to buy and sell earth, he would get a profit from it. But if you think of it as evidence of economics, there's another side to it. I was external examiner down in Wales a couple of years ago. And I had one student that needed a viva. Now, there's one borderline case. And this was a mature student, a woman, who turned out to be a farmer. Wales is sheep-rearing country. So we did the viva, and I said, I said, excuse me, I said, but I have one question I must ask you. I said, how much does a sheep cost? <laughs> she said, well, um, you know, there's different types of sheep. I'm not a farmer. I know nothing. It's like not knowing the Robin song. I, you know, I had no idea. She said, I, I said, well, you tell me. She said, well... A sheep that's going to give birth this year, next year, the year after, you know, five years, productive you, hmm, 80 plus pounds. And I was thinking, you know, uh, there's not quite what I'm expecting. Because this, I bought this for 32 pounds. That's the market value for 4.25 grams of gold. Maybe you can get it for 27 or 28 uh, again, but I, I paid 32. That's with tax when you bring gold into the country. I said, well, just an ordinary sheep. You know, sheep you're going to buy and then slaughter the day after. She said, hmm, 30, 35 pounds? I said, subhanAllah. I said, this piece of gold at the time of the Prophet was expected to buy a sheep. I said, now you're telling me that the same amount of value could buy a sheep today. Zero inflation, 1,400 years. A man called Roy Jastrom wrote a book called The Golden Constant. And he checked out the prices of gold, not against a kind of false idea of the pound sovereign or something like that, but against other commodities, against wheat, for example, against maybe, I don't know, whatever else they, they sold at that time. And he found that although the picture goes a bit like that, it's up and down, basically it stays the same. He looked at 400 years, 1570-something to 1970-something. The golden constant, 
This is the sunnah. sunnah. It doesn't stop there. I went... Uh, no. That summer, after that summer, in the autumn, there was a program, you may remember it, Michael Palin going around the Sahara. And he arrived in Senegal, and he took the train to Bamako in Mali. I don't know if any of you are from Bamako in Mali. You can help me out on the local currency in a minute. And he kept seeing all these sheep. And he didn't know what was going on until he arrived in Bamako, and then his, uh, his guide there, um, he realized that his guide had to buy a sheep because it was Eid the day after. <laughs> so everybody was bringing in sheep to their houses in order to have a, you know, a nice uh, you know, sacrifice the day after. But this guide was a little bit late. And it's a seller's market at that time, the kind of night before Eid. Of course, you know, another 24 hours later, it'd be a different story, but anyway. And the price he had to pay, Michael Palin sort of said, uh, that's equivalent to about uh, uh, 40 pounds. Uh, and he got it down to 38. And I don't know what the local currency was, but it was, you know, 40, 100 something or 40,000. So there you have a ram a sacrificial animal, because it's slightly better than a standard animal for eating, at 40 pounds, and he bargained it down to 38. Later that same year, in Ramadan, I was in contact with a, an old friend of mine in Algeria. In the, the, those of you who are from Algeria will know the Hidab uh, al-Ulya, the high plateaus, were again sheep galore. They took the best meat in the country because of the, the vegetation that the animals eat. And I asked him if he could check out the prices of sheep in the local market. MashaAllah, he gave me a whole list of not just one or two animals, but, you know, Am Jafaf, Am Matar, you know, this and that and the other, Maiz, Ghanam, Dhakar, Untha. I got the whole lot, male, female, good year, bad year, rain, no rain. And I, all the, but everything, and within the limits. A youngish, I think it was between six months and one year, you could get a female sheep again for this amount, you know, for less than whatever it was. I can't remember the amount of Algerian dinars, but the, the equivalent in, in, in pounds of about 30 pounds. So you could get a sheep in Algeria today as we speak for this amount of gold. And then recently, somebody phoned me up. This was earlier on this year in May. He'd heard me talk about this, and I'd mentioned this hadith. And uh, quite independently, he went to four uncles of his who'd just come back from Pakistan. And he asked each uncle separately about the price of sheep. And each uncle gave him a price. One said 30, one said 31, one said 38, one said 40. 32, that's pretty close. A little bit more, a little bit less. Now you can see in a sense what I'm getting at. I must finish up here. We're talking about bringing to life the sunnah. We're talking about getting out of our enslavement. And I would say that the real problem that we have that's at the basis of all of our, if you like, the unseen problem, why our poll tax is going up, why our rent is going up, why the mortgage prices are going up, why this whole thing just seems to be getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse is because of the nature of the system. And as Muslims, we should not be happy with this at the very least. Rather, we should be working to do something about it. Now, I, with a number of other people, are seeking 
to bring back this because every time you use this instead of a pound note, you stop the banks getting some benefit because you know what it's like. You put in a cheque and they say, hmm, that'll be four working days, five working days. What do they do with the money in the meantime? It goes straight into the accounts as far as they're concerned. They lend it out for four or five days free. وَيْلٌ لِلْمُطَفِّفِينَ الَّذِينَ إِذَا اكْتَالُوا عَلَى النَّاسِ يَسْتَوْفُونَ وَإِذَا كَالُوهُمْ أَوْ وَزَنُوهُمْ يُخْسِرُونَ Allah Ta'ala says, Woe to the stinters, who if they take a measure from people, they make sure they get it 100%. The bank says, You owe me uh, 2.37, blah, 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 and they take everything. وَإِذَا كَالُوهُمْ but if they measure out to others, they, they cause other people to lose. So they say, well, sorry, that costs you, uh, you know, five-pound charges, uh, 25-pound charges, uh, something, something, something. Sorry, you can't use that money. That's yours, but you can't use it for another few days, etc. Always to their benefit, never to ours. We'll give you 2%. They take 9 or lend it out at 20 or whatever they do and so on and so forth. So that is, in a sense, I have to wind up because I realize that time is way over. I'm sorry. I would just say that, I would just take it back to Allah Ta'ala. لا يفلح الساحر حيث أتى إنما هذا كيد الساحر This is just a, a trick. And I would say that we are, there are people who are looking to reintroduce this as a means of freedom for the Muslims. And you can use it for simple things. You can use it to pay your zakah. You can use it for dowry. 500 dirhams is the standard Hanafi mahr. Mahr as Wajan Nabi, I think they say. Something like that. 500 dirhams. You can pay it in pure silver. You can get these coins. These coins are now becoming available. And if you want to know the address, etc., then I will give you very briefly the, uh, the website. Excuse me, I can't see it close distance. Um, www.education slash clinic dot education, sorry, education hyphen, education hyphen clinic dot co dot uk. And a man called Adnan Ashfaq, who is our Amir in Edinburgh, and he is busy working on the dinar and the dirham as a means of bringing to life the sunnah of the Prophet and freeing us from the enslavement of our time. Thank you for being patient with me. I've gone over time.